Hey there, and welcome to another Coffee Break with Lance Phelps. Today, I'm going to be continuing my look at John Frame's book, No Other God. This is the show where we basically sit down, we have a cup of coffee, and we go over my other books or different ideas that I have. We basically just uh, have a uh, casual conversation about these that become very serious, very routinely. So, I don't know about super casual, actually, come to think of it. But maybe I'm changing my mind, which actually relates to today's topic. In chapter 10, the title of No Other God in chapter 10 is, Does God Change? This is a really important question, because it's traditionally understood that God does not change at all, that his changing, that he's completely unchanging. And this has truth to it, of course. But the open theist posits that God not only changes, but he changes a lot. Now, the open theist will still maintain that there are certain fundamental attributes about God that changes, but they will nevertheless point to the passages in the Bible that say that God relents, like he regrets or he relents, and they'll say, ah, that's evidence that God himself changes from one state to another, so that he was in one way, he he did have one posture, and because of the way that humans acted, he took a diff- completely different posture. And that was something that sort of happened without him fully knowing that he was going to do so. That was basically, from their perspective, they, the human has total autonomy, or it has autonomy in so much that the human is writing alongside God what is going to happen next. There is no planned future. So that means that God's change then becomes a very deep change. It can be almost like he is, in some ways, a human. He moves from one frame to another, and he adapts to the the ever-changing situation. But this has not been the traditional view of the uh, nature of God in this way. And really, when we read scripture, we do find some rather troubling passages for this particular viewpoint. For for instance, uh, Psalms 102. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but clothing, like, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. And then in Malachi 3.6, we read, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And then in James 1.17, we read, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the, he- of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then we might read Numbers or 1 Samuel. I'm going to go ahead and read Numbers first. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he, not, does he speak and not, then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? He, and then in 1 Samuel 15.29, we read, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, at first, this might seem like, aha, of course, the, uh, that, that, that settles it then. Obviously, God just 100% doesn't change. There's no, there's no relenting. But the problem is that the, there are other passages in the Bible that seem to strongly indicate that he does change his mind. And they feel like, initially, I believe it's a paradox, they feel like they actually contradict these passages. Let's go ahead and read a few of them. So, for instance, Exodus 32, 9 through 10. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. 
And then Frame writes about this, but Moses seeks God's favor, calling him to relent. Relent here translates nichem, the same word translated change his mind in Numbers 23.19 and 1 Samuel 15.29. And let me just kind of back up here. I just read those passages that said basically that God does not change his mind. And he, and in both of those, it was very strict. It was very like, look, he doesn't change his mind. And it's the same word in Exodus. That's a very important thing. The same Hebraic word, it's nichem, and it's, you know, not changing your mind. So we can't go, we'll look at the original language. We'll see two different words. And obviously that means two different things. Let's continue on with what Frame has to say. And God does relent. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Exodus 32, 14. Six verses after 1 Samuel 15, 29, which denies that God relents, we read, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Samuel Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, the, uh, the that word was grieved is translates nichem, so it's that same desire to change, it's the same changing mind state. And so then Frame writes, these verses appear contradictory, and that means, I believe, that they are a paradox. Now, and a paradox is, is not an actual contradiction. The Bible does not contain any actual contradictions, but it does contain paradoxes where we have to sit there and go, hmm, how are we going to handle this situation. And there are multiple times throughout the Bible where that we're, we're presented with that. And this is one of those times. Now, we, we have to be careful how we approach this because it actually goes, well, I'm, let me go through a few more passages before we continue. Like Amos 7, 1 through 6, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive, how can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. And then we read in um, Jonah, we read of Jonah, Jonah 4, 1 through 2. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God's compassion sorry, compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So Frame points out here that this is a very substantial thing to say. God, he says he's actually saying Jonah is saying more than just you know you relent here and there. He's saying you are a God who relents, which actually places that as part of his fundamental nature in a way. Frame writes this. Like Joel, Jonah quotes Exodus 34, 7 through 6, drawing from that passage that conclusion that God relents. This connection with the name Yahweh again suggests that relenting belongs to God's very nature. He is a God who relents. Relenting is a divine attribute. But how can this be? In the face of passages like 1 Samuel 15, 29, which appear to deny that God relents. 
So the way that I think is best to unravel this mystery, and I really do think the Bible lets us unravel the mystery. There are some things written in the Bible that we just cannot fully comprehend, like the problem of evil, where we just can't do it. We can't get it to where it settles in our mind and there's just no tension. But in this case, I think that there is a settling, and it goes back to the essential nature of God's will. Pretty much no one fully acknowledges a God with a with with a one unified will. And by that, I don't mean that he He's a split personality or split God, but I do by that I mean that just because he prescribes something does not necessarily mean that he decrees that something. We have to think of his will in a slightly more complicated fashion because he is a God who knows all things. He knows the present from the past and he knows the future. And even the open theists are going to, to try to help untangle some of these biblical difficulties, going to try to split his will into the uh, secret will and the known will. Of course, they're going to minimize this because they don't want it to uh, you know, hurt their position. But nevertheless, when we start to interpret these passages, we need to start understanding the differences between God's wills. And God's prescriptive will is something that he tells us that he wants us to do. It means you need to do this. That doesn't necessarily mean that he expects that we will do that thing. In fact, in his decreative will, he may actually decree the very opposite. He says he is saying that this is righteous and good, and he decrees in his decreative will that he was going to allow this person to do the very opposite. So, so he basically might be saying something that he knows is not going to happen. And this is of course, to demonstrate his glory. It's a sort of a greater good situation. So in the same way, when we read about God's changeability versus his unchangeability, his relenting in these passages, I think that it's important that we recognize that God is actually, we need to look at this from the two different wills perspective. When you say that God relents, what you're saying is during the course of time, he has chosen to act out in this way. So his decreative will has not changed. He is in that sense unchanging. But he, as an actor in history, has decreed that he is going to relent from this thing. So in one view, from one perspective, now he, does, he doesn't relent, he never does. But from our perspective, we can see him as somebody who does relent, who says, I will do this. And then, by the means that he has set into place, namely our repentance, he says, okay, now I will relent from this thing that I was going to do. And oftentimes prophecies are exactly this thing. God says, if you don't, the prophecies are conditional. If you don't do this, or if you do this, then I am going to do this. And lo and behold, depending on what God had in his secret will, which we are most of the time, there are some times in the Bible where we actually see this, but most of the time, God's secret will is not privy to us. We don't know what his secret will is. We just simply have to wait to find out. But, and even then we may not fully find out, but we do know what his prescriptive will is. We do know what he tells us that he, that, that is righteous and good and that he wants us to do. So when we see a God who relents, when we see that uh, that behavior, we are seeing actual relenting in some sense, and when, and it's not just an anthropomorphism. Now it is in a sense an anthropomorphism because it comes becomes some, somewhat complex. But we can't just sort of shunt all these passages off to the side that say, well, God relents, and they say, nah, he's he's unchanging. That's just an anthropomorphism. He actually is a God who relents. The Bible 
Actually, it does say it. But that relenting, of course, does not alter his unchangeability. And this is how these two different, seemingly conflicting, or the paradox, can be married together. To where we see, oh look, God is a God who relents. He he uh, decrees that just the ends from the means. And in that decree, he is an unchanging God. So he decrees that not only will he, we, will he relent in the future, he knows that he's going to relent, but he decrees how he's going to relent. He's going to relent by our repentance, by our prayer, by us beseeching him and saying, God, God, please do not allow this to happen. He is going to then say, yes, I will not allow that to happen now that you have said this. So then we have to ask the question, well, how does God remain the same? How is God unchangeable? And uh, Frame offers this. God is unchanging in his essential attributes. That is, in the very ba- the baseline of what he is. So he doesn't, at one point, become an unrighteous God. He, he's completely change, unchanging in that regard. He's righteous today, tomorrow, and ne- the next year. And in other aspects of himself, he's unchanging. And he's also unchanging in his decreative will. We just got done with a discussion over the decreative will. And in that decreative will, he is unchanging. That is that is the, basically the, the passages in Samuel and other passages that, were, that say God is unchanging. That is what they're talking about. And then he's also unchanging in his covenant faithfulness. So God is not going to break his covenant word. When God makes a covenant with you, absolutely, it's going to happen. No way it's not going to happen. He is unchanging in that regard. And finally, he is unchanging in his tr- the truth of his revelation. Basically, God can set up a conditional future, and in that way, God very well might relent through the course of this time frame. And so we would see a God who said, I am going to destroy these people. And then he set up a conditionality. I'll destroy these people if they don't move away from this. And then they do move away from that, as is the case with Jonah. And he relents. He did say at one point he was going to destroy these people. But of course, in his decreative will, he knew, "Mm, I am going to, I'm setting up this condition and I know that down the road, I am going to relent from that. So in that, that is how he is both a changing, well, he's not a changing God. And that is the one way that he's changing in his relenting through the course of history. I'm going to go ahead and read this quote about God's grief and how that relates for John Frame. He says, he is grieved one day and pleased the next. In my view, this is more than just anthropology. Unanthropomorphic description. In these accounts, God is not merely like an agent in time, he really is in time, changing as others do. And we should not say that he is that his atemporal, changeless existence is more real than his changing existence in time. As the anthropomorph- anthropomorphic might suggest, both are real. Neither form of existence contradicts the other. God's transcendence never compromises his imminence, nor do his control and authority compromise his covenant presence. So God is an agent that acts in history, even when when he moves down with his spirit. And that means that although he is unchanging outside of history, and it doesn't compromise his, his outside of timeness, nevertheless, while we, hit, we see the flow of time, we see a God who at one point says, I'm going to do this, expecting that through that threat they will change, and then he relents from doing so. We see that a God who does respond to his creature. But of course, he knows that he is going to respond to his creature. Let me go ahead and end this section or this chapter with this quote. History is like a novel written by God. In a great novel, the author brings about everything that happens. But events can also be explained within the world that the author creates. God's 
historical novel is a logical temporal sequence in which one event arises naturally out of, out of the one before. When God himself becomes an actor in the drama, he acts in accordance with that, that sequence. He sends the rains and then brings the harvest. At one time, his interest is producing rain. At another, harvest. Thus do his interests change over time, according to his unchanging plan. That's all I have for you today. Make sure to check out our website, divedeep.net, for more content, including blog posts, book reviews, and video content. If you like this podcast, help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. Also, check out our main episodes of Dive Deep on the podcast feed and stream live on Facebook every other Thursday night at 7 p.m. That's at facebook.com slash divedeeppodcast. We hope to see you there. Soli Deo Gloria.